so t- we're having a missions guest speaker. On guest speaker, here's what you need to know. Um, w- the reason we don't have missions month anymore in February is because attendance went down like 27%. So either we can't be trusted as a church to come when we know there's a guest speaker, or we can't be trusted to come when we know it's going to be about missions. So now here's what we do. Every guest speaker is a surprise, and Mission Sunday is a surprise. <laughs> We have, we're, our plans have about five of them throughout, sp- spread throughout the year, and so we don't forget about missions. You know, you, you bang it all out in one month, and then you don't say anything the rest of the year. So, surprise, today is a guest speaker, and it's about missions. In relationship to guest speakers, this has, this has to do with a number of things. One, it has to do with my rest, but it also has to do with all, us as a church being disciplined about being able to hear what God has to say for us, mediated through multiple different personalities. If we can't do that, we become a personality-driven church. And listen, my wife always says this to me when, we, when she and I have arguments about the church. She said, Nick, she says, Nick, you have to make sure you prepare High Point Church to be without you for the day when you get hit by a car. <laughs> because it's probably going to be a 2008 black Toyota Sienna in our driveway. <laughs> she doesn't really say that last part. <laughs> but it's, it's important. And so we will have, you know, 12 or 15 guest speakers a year. We'll have a couple of interns a a year, and because we're totally committed to that. Okay? Now, secondly, um, missions is is very—global missions is very important to us. God's mission in the world. Um, 10% of our budget, right, every year goes to global missions, to to evangelization, to to developmental partnerships, to missions in general. Um, My hope is that in about 6 to 10 years, that will be about 17% of our budget and that about 3% will go to church planting. Now, that's a ways from now. But that's my goal. I've said it publicly before. I'm telling you again, that's the goal. As our church hopefully will grow and as we increase in generosity, our bills that we have to cover will be a smaller percentage of our budget and we can give more to global missions, and to church planting. Because we're going to be a volunteer-driven church, not a staff-driven church, that money won't get swallowed up in staffing, and it can go to the nations. Does that make sense? So, um, I want, so here, so Eric Hesse is our speaker today. Eric and I have been friends since seminary. Um, back at Ted's, when I was the example of what not to be when you grow up and be a pastor, and he was the example of what to be when you grow up and be a pastor. Um, in fact, we were good friends, and I always felt like the other seminary professors were afraid I was going to corrupt him. So um, he, uh, he went to Wheaton College for his undergrad. He went to Ted's, where I went um, for seminary. And then he came out, and he took a church of 30 to 50 people in a, in a house. I mean, a house that had been made into a church in Richland Center that had like 5,000 people in it. And, um, you know, when you're in seminary, that's not really what you dream about, but that's what most everybody has to do. You got a sheep, you got a shepherd sheep, right? And you got to go where sheep are. And, and honestly, I was pretty impressed that he took that position. And he had a chance to go to Missoula, Montana and fly fish, and he didn't take that church, right? And um, he's been there for more than, I think he's been, this was 10 years-ish, something like that. And, um, over that time, he's not only grown that church and they built a building, and there's, um, last I heard, there were more than 100 people went there, which doesn't sound like a really big church, but 500 people, 350,000 people in our county, right? 100 people, 5,000 people in his town, right? That's like this church being like 4,000, okay? That's, give you some idea of um, Eric's leadership there. And in addition to that, he's been doing a bunch of denominational work to help plant and grow churches, particularly in the East, the post-Christian East. And that's begin- and, he's, and he's, for years, he's been going on short, short-term trips almost every year, which, listen, 
that's important. Your pastor go, himself going and keeping a fire burning inside of him for the gospel among other nations. He went to the Czech Republic a number of times. And God used all of that to kind of lead him on this path to Berlin. Um, but here's what I want you to hear from him, that all of us have to struggle with Jesus' call to both send others and be sent ourselves. That will look as many different ways as there are people in this room, and you and I have to sort that out, what that looks like for each of us. But it is something we have to face and sort out, right? Let me tell you just one last thing as, as Eric comes up. Um, not only does he care about the re-evangelization of post-Christian Europe, which I think is an important thing, and he'll talk about that. One of the things he, he won't get a, much of a chance to talk about is um, he also, they're also in the last stages of adopting uh, a little boy named Jethro from Haiti, who is now officially a Hesse. So he's got three sons and a lovely wife. So let's pray for Eric. Father, I pray that as Eric speaks now to us, that you would awaken us, enliven us, help us, teach us, lead us. I know that this is going to be a push-forward kind of Sunday rather than a comfort, feel-good-about-ourselves kind of thing, but Father, we want to be followers of Jesus. We want to go where he goes. We want to, we want to be like him. We want to, we want to go where, um, where his presence is going out to. We want to, we want to have hearts that are not just focused on ourselves, and we know that um, that that's where you're leading us. So we pray that as Eric speaks, you'd help us to listen um, as you speak and re-speak your written word through his personality and through what he's prepared and through his experiences. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks for having me, Nick. Thanks again for inviting me. Um, as Nick mentioned, I've been in Richland Center for the last 10 years, leading our congregation there, and it's been a joy and a privilege to serve them and to shepherd them. Uh, my, my journey to the Driftless area of Wisconsin started, as Nick mentioned, in, in seminary. We, uh, we used to drive up this way to fly fish for trout as a break from our studies. And uh, I, I want to tell you really quickly one short story about Nick and I and our journeys. It's slightly dark it's like Nick Noir so um, he's not always this way but this case was it was a humorous and dark at the same time we're somewhere near Fenimore we just we just finished fishing it was hot out and uh, as we're driving down the road we passed this uh, dead pheasant on the side of the road and uh, both fly you know tie we tie our own flies and so pheasant tails are used quite frequently in tying your own making your own flies and so we, we like pulled over the car like we got to get the pheasant tails from this pheasant well, the problem was this pheasant wasn't dead yet. And so, um, you know, we're, we're, yeah, there's so many different ways we could have done this, but the way we chose... The, the way we chose to euthanize this particular pheasant uh, was not the best choice. So Nick gets out. He, uh, he runs uh, to, to the pheasant. He grabs this rock, and I'm kind of watching from the rearview mirror, and it was, it was a slightly Lord of the Flies, Piggy has the conch kind of moment where I, I see Nick grab this rock and start, like, smashing the pheasant's head. And it, it um, by the way, that's not how you kill a bird. We know that now. And... Um, so Nick, Nick came back to the car and he was mortified. He was absolutely mortified that he hadn't, you know, cleanly put the bird out of its misery. He's white as a sheet and, and you'd think that at that point we would like cop in the car and drive off and just, you know, cut our losses, but Nick went back to the bird, grabbed a bigger rock and just <laughs> smashing. Oh, the image is just burned in my brain, so. Yeah, th this story has no connection at all to what I'm gonna talk to you about this morning. <laughs> Um, but I, th I thought you'd have, I, I thought you'd enjoy having a little insight into the weird mind of, of Nick Gibson, so. Um, 
on a more serious note, um, you know, God's been doing some, some, uh, some crazy stuff in our life. I want to share a little bit about our journey uh, to go to, to Berlin. Um, could we just quiet our hearts, kind of get the pheasant story out of our minds and quiet our hearts and just ask the Lord to speak to us? Will, will you pray with me? God, we, we believe that um, you do speak and you speak through your word. Your word is living, it's, it's active. And so we want to be uh, hearers of your word and doers as well. But right now, God, as we, as we hear your word, we ask that uh, you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, you guys know this. Uh, John's gospel says that Jesus is the light of the world, right? You know this. John 1, verses 9 and 10, the, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. More literal translation of that last phrase is the world did not recognize Christ. Now, I find it absolutely astonishing that the world that Christ made, the world that he holds, he holds it all together. He holds everything together. This very world, you and I, his creation, the world that he made, we don't recognize who Jesus is naturally. See, here's the deal. People are not moths. Right? What do moths do? Moths are drawn to the lights, but people are not moths. We cannot wait for people to be drawn to the light of Christ. They don't recognize the light. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So you and I, have to figure out a way to send ourselves and take the light of Christ to people who desperately be, need to be led to the Savior, to the light of the world. So this morning, I just want to share with you a little bit about our family's journey to be light, a Germany that, Germany, I did this first service too, a, a journey that's culminated in our call to go to Germany and in particular to Berlin. So if you're taking notes this morning, here's, here's the big idea. Here's what I want you to remember. We have to live sent lives because it's not readily apparent to people that Jesus is the light of spiritual life. You and I, we have to live sent lives because it's not readily apparent to people. People are not moths. It's not readily apparent to people that Jesus is the light of spiritual life. So this morning, I want to share with you two lessons that I'm learning about living a sent life from two very different texts, the first being Matthew 4, 12 through 17, and the second being Psalm 139. We're gonna look at Matthew 4 first. Uh, in, in June of 2000, let me frame this, this uh, story a little bit for you. In June of 2011, uh, I began a teaching series at our church called The Kingdom Way of Life, and I wanted to take our people through Matthew's ser Sermon on the Mount. Just really drill down into uh, this, this kingdom eth ethic, this, this way of life that Jesus describes for us uh, in, in, in Matthew uh, chapter four and following. And it was as I prepared to teach the very first message in that series, 
piece from Matthew 4, 12 through 17 that, that God kind of undid something in my life and uh, God began to do something in me preparing me for this call to Berlin. And here's the first lesson about living a sent life. Again, Matthew 4, 12 through 17, that's uh, page uh, 1500 in the Bible uh, on the, the chair in front of you. Here's the first lesson about living a sent life. Like Christ, we must intentionally flow to places of spiritual darkness in order to shine his light. Like Jesus, we must intentionally flow to places of, of spiritual darkness in order to shine the light of Christ. Now see, see if this kind of comes out in the text. It's Matthew 4, 12 through 17. Let me read it for you. Now when he, meaning Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And you see the quotation marks there, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I had read that text a thousand times, and I never noticed what I noticed that week when I was preparing to give this series, this message away to our people. What does Jesus do? What does he do? He intentionally moves to, uh, he goes, he intentionally goes to a place where the darkness is most dense. Do you see that? You see what he does? And this move from Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, to, to Capernaum along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, this is the very first thing that Jesus does in his public ministry. He makes a move. You know, this, this verse 17, uh, Jesus began to preach, kind of indicates to me that's the inauguration of his public ministry. So the very first thing Jesus does is, is he moves. Now, I don't know about you, but first things have... I think, have symbolic importance, don't they? You think about your, your first day on the job. You want to set a good precedent. Think about your, your first day at school if you're a student. You want, you want to start the year off right. Think about your first date with your, with your future spouse. Has anyone set out to have a poor first date? No! You want to set a precedent for the future. Now I want to suggest to you that that's what Jesus is doing here. He's setting a precedent, an example for us to follow. He goes to where the darkness is most dense. And living sent means that you and I need to grapple with this and somehow figure out how we are to do this in our lives as well. A little bit more about this move from Nazareth to Capernaum. Capernaum is on the northwest shore of, of the Sea of Galilee. It's a, uh, this area that Jesus goes to is a center of fishing and trade. Uh, it's a densely populated region. Uh, a great number of, of smaller villages all kind of near each other. Smallest village being around 15,000 people. So in other words, Jesus does not go to a remote backcountry kind of area. He goes to a densely populated area. It's a bustling, productive region. Two of the most uh, well-traveled routes in antiquity go through this area. Maybe most significantly, Capernaum in its vicinity was a highly Gentile area, right? 
And that would have been important for Jesus' audience, you know, or Matthew, Matthew's audience. Matthew's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, and so Matthew's audience, seeing Jesus move to this area, would have been like, you gotta be kidding, Jesus goes there? Why? It's the other side of the tracks, if you will. It's the place maybe you and I wouldn't necessarily want to put roots down and raise a family. And Matthew, recording this very first event in Jesus' public ministry, Matthew applies Old Testament scripture to it and says that that move is a fulfillment of scripture. Isaiah 9, chapter one and two to be exact. That's why you see those quotation marks blocking off that section in the middle there. So Matthew takes this Old Testament text and he applies it to the life of Jesus. In other words, the light of Jesus is dawning on the peoples of this region. The move fulfills prophecy and kind of foreshadows the gospel's expansion to all nations. Galilee of the nations, as that quotation from Isaiah says. What I want you to notice in particular, though, is, is the emphasis on the spiritual darkness of the place that Jesus goes to. Look at verse 16. Matthew says that Jesus goes to those dwelling in the region and shadow of death. Literally, the text reads, the, the Isaiah text reads, the dark land of death. That, that, that Old Testament language, uh, Isaiah's using a, a Hebrew metaphor to communicate the idea of impenetrable darkness. It's language that is meant for us to evoke hardship and oppression and deprivation and lack of clarity about one's life. And that's where Jesus goes. He sets up his ministry headquarters in this place. Uh, I'm trying to think of maybe modern day parallels to what what Jesus does here. I I don't know if this flies or not. Imagine maybe a a well-known Christian ministry, maybe a ministry you even support. Imagine them moving their their world headquarters from, let's say, Wheaton, Wheaton, Illinois, or Colorado Springs, Colorado, to, or some other squeaky clean Midwestern town to, to like Vegas or the Big Apple, or inner city Chicago. That's kind of what Jesus does here. He goes, he goes to where the darkness is most dense. This is what it means to live sent. See, I, I think that for those of us who have walked with Christ for any length of time, we, we forget, we too easily forget how terrifying it is to walk through life in spiritual darkness. We forget this. Have you ever been in a room where there's no light whatsoever? It's totally pitch black. Have you ever been spelunking in a cave when your headlamp doesn't work? You're totally shrouded in darkness. That is an unnerving, unsettling experience, isn't it? Spiritual darkness is worse. We too easily forget how our dependence upon our own resources and perspectives for guidance through life, we forget how that is a harrowing, painfully bleak existence. Christ offers this world something so much better, doesn't he? Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Oh, what joy, right? What joy. But people are not moths. 
They're not naturally drawn to the light of Christ. And so we have to live sent lives and find people trapped in darkness, grab them by the hand, and walk them to the Savior. That's the principle. Part of learning to think and live sent is, is beginning to notice the spiritual darkness around you. It's about having eyes to see that darkness, which it's so easy not to do, right? Just to kind of have a blind eye and, and just ignore it. But it's about seeing the darkness and then, and then intentionally kind of moving to those places. Not necessarily moving your family, like location, but just wherever you're at, moving to those places of spiritual darkness in order to shine the healing, hopeful light of Jesus. So let me ask you, and maybe you can write these questions down as a, as a way to apply what, what I think we're, we're seeing in this text. Like, where, where, are, the, where are the places in Madison where, where, where there's injustice? Where are the places around here where, where, where there's brokenness? Where, where are the places where, where people are desperate for good news? Where are the places where they're, they're harassed and helpless? Where are the oppressed? Where are those in this city, in this area, where, where if you go to them and you talk with them, you talk with people who feel like they're not good enough. They don't deserve the grace of God. Because when you begin to answer those questions, you begin to see that that's where you are to go. That's, those are the places and, and the kind of people that God is calling you to have an influence on. The application of this text does not mean that everybody is called to overseas missions or everybody needs to necessarily move their family. It's not what I'm saying. But we are all sent. And God might be calling you instead to a neighbor down the street. He might be calling you to the bar around the corner. He might be calling you to the funky new age coffee shop. I don't know where he's calling you. It's between you and, and, and the Holy Spirit. But it's about, living sense about having compassionate eyes to see the darkness, Right? And, and the willingness to hear and listen to God's voice and then the courage to obey him. Have you guys ever been uh, to the Menards over here on Mineral Point? Won't you imagine driving up to the Menards over here uh, on Mineral Point and uh, imagine that you're going to the light section in Menards for, for something. Imagine all those lights, can lights and ceiling lights and incandescents and LEDs and, and spotlights. Imagine all those lights, all those lights shining brightly, all those lights shining brightly in one spot for all the other lights. See, I think too frequently, that's the, that's the picture of the American church. Not necessarily this church, because I don't know you guys well enough. But too frequently, that's the picture, the, the light section, that's the picture of the American church. We, we shine our lights for other lights instead of shining our lights in the places that have no light. But lights are not created for other lights, are they? They're not. Lights are created for the darkness. In his book, Life Together, Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor who was murdered by the Nazis right at the close of World War II, Bonhoeffer says this, and I love these words. They're hard words, and I'm, I'm saying these words as much to myself as I am to you this morning. Bonhoeffer says this, the Christian life belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. There is his commission, his work, and then Bonhoeffer quotes Martin Luther. Luther says this, the kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. 
And he who will not suffer this does not want to be of the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among friends, to sit among roses and lilies, not with the bad people, but with the devout people. Oh, you blasphemers of Christ, if Christ had done what you are doing, who would ever have been spared? And I think all of us should respond with gratitude that God did not stay, but he came to dwell among our darkness, to call us into relationship with him. See, I'm convinced that we will never fulfill the Great Commission if we fail to grasp the significance of what the Trinity does or the significance of what Jesus does in this text and the implications for how you and I are begin, need to begin thinking and living. I wanna encourage you to take some time this week. Take some time maybe today at lunch with your family. I'll take some time with your small group this, this week and, and just begin looking at your family rhythms, your schedule, and just pray to Master Jesus and ask him what needs to change in your life in order to be more obedient to God's word in this area. I was sharing this this text with uh, a church a number of months ago, and and after the the service, a woman made a beeline for me and came up to me, and and, uh, we started talking, and and, and she had the guts to tell me, and I appreciate that she did this, but she had the guts to tell me that, that, and explain the frustration that this living scent principle was causing her. And if I were to paraphrase this woman's objection, basically she she said that I, I didn't understand as a pastor uh, and she went on to explain that, that she spent all day, every day, at work, at places, with people where, where she, she, in other words, she was all too familiar with the spiritual darkness around her. And because of that, she, she preferred to spend as much of her free time as possible with other believers, in the lights, around other lights. And in response, if if that's where you're at this morning, I do understand. It's not easy shining your light in dark places. Which leads me to the second lesson that I've been learning and I wanna pass on to you. It's a lesson from Psalm 139. If doing what Jesus does and models for us in Matthew 4, if doing that, living that way terrifies you, then you need to remember the lesson of Psalm 139. Here's what Psalm 139 teaches. God will go before you and he will lead you with his sustaining presence when you follow him into the darkness. God will go before you and he will lead you with his sustaining presence when you follow him into the darkness. So for me personally, come following that Matthew 4 message, our family began to pray, God, where are you sending us? Well, the application for us was that we needed to look for places of spiritual darkness in and around Richland Center that God was calling us to. And I, if I had time, I'd tell you some stories of how God answered that prayer and used our family to be light and darkness. But it also became clear during the season of our lives that, that, that God had something more for us. It was a surprise to us, but God had something. He, he wanted the trajectory of this, this, the application of this text to, to be something more. And, and so we began praying, God, kind of putting the whole world before God. God, are you calling us somewhere else? Do you want us to go somewhere else to, to shine your light in some other place? And the more we prayed, the more we discerned God leading in our life, the more God seemed to be saying missions. And the more we prayed about missions, the more God seemed to be saying Europe. 
about this time, this would have been early 2012, uh, we were, uh, my wife and I were reading uh, the, the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer by Eric Metaxas. Great book, by the way, I highly recommend it. And, and as we're reading this book, God uses this book to get our attention and focus on Berlin. A lot of the events in the biography are, are centered in Berlin. And so we're, we're praying, God, do you want us in Berlin? Uh, my wife uh, was poking around the, the Evangelical Free Church of America mission agency site on the website and, and she was doing a search one day and, and up pops a need for people on the Berlin team. She said, Eric, did you know there's a team of people in Berlin? I had no idea. So I contacted the city team leader and we started Skyping back and forth and kind of developed a relationship and, and uh, he was coming through the States, one of his supporting churches in the area and he wanted to get together. And so we piled our kids in the car, two kids in the car and we, we drove to Madison. We met at the Quiznos off the Monona exit and we just listened to Mike share with us about what God was doing in Berlin. And our hearts are burning inside of us as we heard these stories of God at work in Berlin. And we left that day. We, in the car home, we, were like, we, we, we really felt that God was calling our family, leading us to Berlin. It was, it was a holy moment. It was one of those moments where you just feel the culmination of all these prayers. And it's like, Berlin. God wants our family in Berlin. And so we get home later that day and uh, we're just, we're, we're voracious for all things Berlin. We, we want to know what life is going to be like in this city. And so after we get the kids in bed, we pull up our YouTube and we're watching videos on life, about life in Berlin. And we start with like Rick Steves, Travel Berlin with all the tourist spots. And, and we keep watching these videos. And, and, and as we watch, the, the videos we watch about life in Berlin get darker and darker and darker. We're watching videos about how prostitution is legal in Berlin. You know, 400 brothels in the city. One in three men have frequented a prostitute. We're watching videos how, how Berlin is one of the, the destinations for trafficked women in Europe. And my heart's breaking for the city. But at the same time, I'm also becoming uncomfortable. Because earlier that day, I felt like God was saying, Eric, I want your family in Berlin. And as I'm watching these videos, I'm gr coming to grips with the darkness of the city. And, and in my heart, I'm saying, I can't go there. I can't take my family there. I can't move to this place. And, and I began kind of having this dialogue with God, kind of like a, a Jonah dialogue, where Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He goes the opposite direction. I'm fighting with God. God, I think you want our family, but I don't want to go. And I fought with God all night. I wrestled with him in my sleep or lack of sleep. And, and finally, I just got up. 4 a.m., I got up and sat down to read my Bible. And my, my normal, scheduled Old Testament psalm reading for that day was Psalm 139. And God called our family to Berlin from Psalm 139. Turn, turn in, in your Bible, to it's page 94 of the, the Pew Bible. Let me just read this, this psalm to you. This is a wonderful psalm. Psalm of David. I'd read this psalm many times and I, I saw some new things that morning uh, of the call. Uh, you know, I always read Psalm 139 with a particular set of lenses. I didn't have those lenses on that morning and I see now, this is a psalm about God leading his people. David ends the psalm with, this, with the words, you know, and lead me in the way everlasting. But at the beginning of the psalm, David, David talks about God's perfect omniscience. God knows everything about us. Psalm 139, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. That's a comforting thought. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you, Lord, you know it all together. And I was, I was overwhelmed that morning with God's personal intimate knowledge of me. 
He knows everything about me. He knows everything about you. He knows the good, the bad, and the ugly. He knows what you're passionate about. He knows what drains you. He knows what you're gifted in. He knows what you're not gifted in. He knows every single, single thing about you. But what was new for me this morning is, is I connected God's personal knowledge of me to what David does in verse five. God leading, God leading. Verse five, David says, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. It's an image of a a shepherd laying his hands on the sheep, hemming the sheep in, channeling the sheep in the direction he wants the sheep to go because the shepherd knows what's best for the sheep and he's leading the sheep to green pastures and still waters. And I had the sense this morning that God knows everything about me and he was hemming me in, hemming our family in, channeling our family in the direction of Berlin. And my response was the same thing as David's, verse six. Oh, this is great, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high, I cannot attain it. But there's a shift in verse seven. David shifts from omniscience, verses one through six, to omnipresence in verses seven and following. Because that's the question. If God knows everything about us and if he's leading us, we want to know, will he be with us when we go? And that's where David goes in verse seven. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Rhetorical questions that kind of beg the answer. Well, you can't go anywhere and be apart from the presence of God. If I ascend to heaven, you're there, God. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. The grave, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God said to me in that verse nine, he said, Eric, I'm asking you to take your family, to take the wings of the morning, dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, move across the Atlantic, move to Berlin. Don't worry about it, my hand's leading you there and my right hand will hold you. And I I put my Bible down and I'm, I'm crying at this point. My hands are raised, I'm praising God. This is so crazy, this is awesome. You're calling our family to Berlin. And in the quietness of the moment, all of the objections and all the fighting and all the wrestling from the night before came flooding back into my mind. And my prayer in that moment was, and excuse the the, the French, oh crap, what about the darkness? And I look back down at my Bible, verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. David's like, that's not right. That's not right thinking. Even the darkness is not dark to you, God. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. God said to me, Eric, don't worry about the the spiritual climate of the place I'm calling you to. Follow me, I will be your light. I will be light for your family. He spoke that to my spirit. And so our family, we need to go. In order to be obedient to Jesus, we need to go. We weren't necessarily looking to go. We love our church. We love our people. We love what God is doing in Richland Center. But we, we need to respond to this. And do you hear, do you hear the principle? God, God wants to nudge us out of the nest called church into the places where he's working. He wants us to flow to places of spiritual darkness to shine his light. And if that terrifies, terrifies us, we need to remember the principle in Psalm 139 that God will go before us. He will lead us with his sustaining presence when we follow him into the darkness. See, I really believe this in the core of my being. 
that every single believer in Christ wants an experience of God using them in a tangible, powerful way, using the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given for God's glory. We want that. I, I, I think that in order for us to experience that, we need to follow God to the places where he's already at work. And oftentimes those places are in places of spiritual darkness because he cares about people. He cares about people. So if you want to see God at work in your life, you have to follow him into the darkness. See, I, I think, I'm going to give you a quote by Ed Stetzer about the church. And again, I don't know if this categorizes this church, but generally speaking of evangelicalism, we're, we're in a precarious position. Etzer says this about the church. He says, it seems we work very hard to insulate ourselves from the very world Jesus says we should be focused on. It seems we've created without malicious design, in other words, unintentionally, a, a Christian bubble, an evangelical subculture where Christians live surrounded only by other Christians. And as a result, there are few among the lost whom we get to know intimately. Christian experts tell us how to raise our kids, how to handle our finances, what music to buy, what movies to see, which books to read. The bubble is complete. And then Stetzer says this, and I love this. But God is on a mission outside the bubble. And I, I, wanna, I wanna be where God is at work. Not that he's at, not at work in church, but you know what I mean, don't you? I want to be. I want to experience that. And if you follow Christ outside the bubble into the darkness, God will lead you and sustain you. It took Psalm one thirty nine for that to finally sink in to my spirit. But you know what? The, the, the promise of of God's active sustaining presence is that's it, no different than what Jesus promises in the Great Commission, is it? Remember the Great Commission, go, go and make disciples of all nations. Uh, by the way, the command is to go. And as one of my friends says, really the question we need to be asking is, do we have permission to stay? So the command is to go, but go and make disciples of all nations. And what's the promise that comes at the end? And behold, I am with you always. So when we go, the promise is of God's presence, sustaining us, leading us, guiding us, on mission with Christ. So those are the two lessons on, on living a sent life that I'm, I'm learning right now. Will you guys pray for us as we venture out to Berlin? Um, and just to share a little bit about uh, what God is doing around the world and in particular in Berlin. Uh, I don't know if you know this. I, I'm, I'm guessing you do. Uh, by, by the way, this is my family. Um, my wife, Miriam, uh, our two boys, Ethan and Micah. We have a third boy, as Nick mentioned, coming to us by uh, adoption from Haiti. His name's Jethro. Miriam wanted to be with us, but she's actually in Ohio right now uh, for her grandmother's funeral. But So she sends her greetings, though. So here's our family. Um, you know, we're, we're, here's a little bit about what God's doing. Um, I, you probably know this, but, but sociologically speaking, we are, we are living in one of the, right now, one, one of the greatest movements of people in the history of the world. And it's a move of people from, from rural areas to cities. Uh, this graph shows, uh, for the first time in 2007, we, we crossed a threshold where more people now live in cities than in rural areas. And it's a trend that will never be reversed again in the history of the world. It's anticipated by the year 2050 70% of the world's population will live in urban centers. By the way, that's 70% of 11 billion people will live in urban centers. 
So that's one thing that's happening in the world right now is, is the world is flocking to cities. In fact, I read a statistic not too long ago that, that said that 50,000 people moved to Berlin last year. That's a lot of people moving to one place and that, that pace is gonna accelerate. So that's one thing that, that's happening in the world around us right now. The other thing that's happening is that is an incredible influx of people into the kingdom. I don't know if you know this, but, but God is doing an amazing work around the world, calling people into the family of God. This, this graph shows the, the growth of evangelical believers, uh, Latin America, Africa, and Asia in the last 100 years, percent growth. And as you can see, that top, that, that top, chart, the top line, Latin America, the growth is trending towards exponential. So regardless of, of what you think about that growth, it's clearly, God's up to something. He's doing something in the world around us. I think we should praise God, we should thank him for what he's doing. But do you know what the growth curve looks like for Europe? Here's the growth curve for Europe. It's exactly the opposite. Europe has been in steady decline for the last number of years, more than 100 years, uh, such that Europe is, is now one of the least evangelized continents on the, place of the, on the face of the planet. Most, most people, when they think of missions, they don't think of Europe. But I want to suggest to you that you need to think of Europe. Europe is a place of great need. In fact, in, in Germany in particular, uh, Christianity, a place uh, where the Reformation, the fountainhead of the Reformation, not too far from Berlin, Christianity has been wiped off of the face of the map. It's been said of Berlin, it's a place that's not only forgotten God, they've forgotten that they've forgotten God. It is a, it's a postmodern, post-Christian place, one of the most postmodern, post-Christian places on the planet. So in particular in Berlin, the, the result of this is that about only one and a half percent of the population of the city are Christ followers. So those who study missions say that if a population is less than 2% reached, it's, it's an unreached people group. So in terms of the population of Berlin, you can actually say that Berlin is an unreached people group. That's not to minimize the unreached people groups of the rest of the world. There's, there's great needs everywhere, but you, you need to know of the need in Europe and in Berlin in particular. Berlin is a diverse city. It's a, it's a uh, we didn't know this when God called us there, uh, 180 nations represented by the Berlin metro area. It's one of the most diverse cities in the world. I get excited about that, being becoming a multi-ethnic, multicultural family ourselves. Um, it, it is a strategic city. Uh, as you know, Berlin has incredible influence in Europe because of its economy, Germany because of its economy. But Berlin is now, culturally speaking, rivaling London and Paris as far as strategic importance on the continent. And so when we think about a movement of the gospel in Berlin, we get excited. I get excited thinking about the kind of influence that a gospel movement in Berlin could have not only in Germany but in Europe and around the world. If, if, if the light of Christ shines brightly in Berlin, it could, it could affect the entire world. Berlin historically has been, uh, Europe, uh, along with Europe, a, a place of exporting ideas. You know, you, you, you guys know this. I mean, for the last 500 years, the world's leading intellectual movements have come from Europe, whether that's the, the, the Renaissance, the Reformation, the Counter-Reformation, the Enlightenment, Scientific Revolution, the Industrial Revolution, Romanticism, Existentialism, Marxism, Nazism, Postmodernism. All these things are exported by Europe. But you know what Europe is exporting right now? Agnosticism and unbelief. And we're feeling the effects of that here. We're drinking the postmodern, post-Christian elixir here. But if Berlin were to be transformed by the power of the gospel so that it's exporting Christ, whew, I get excited about that. I get excited about that.
In Berlin in particular, I think you see the full flowering of this postmodern, post-Christian ethic. Uh, I like to show this slide because it's partially for shock value, but also to help you realize that that Berlin is a unique place. Berlin is to Germany what San Francisco is to the U.S. It is a place of extreme tolerance, and part of that comes from their history, where they were so intolerant of Judaism, they've swung the pendulum in the opposite direction. They feel like, well, we need to be tolerant of anybody and everything. So that's, that's Berlin. How can you be, uh, um, pray with us uh, that we're hoping to see a, a movement of the gospel. This is our, our team vision. We're going with a large team. Our, our, our goal is to see, uh, our dream is to see Berlin transformed by the power of the gospel so it has regional and global impact for Christ. Uh, I don't have time to go through all of what we're gonna be doing. I think God's called me to church planting and to leadership development in particular. So, you know, and if you want to hear more about what we think we'll be doing, our calling, please talk to me after the service. Um, let me just say this. I'd love for you guys to be involved with us in some way, in some capacity. And that means you could, you could pray for us. We need people praying for us. We, I, we need your families praying for our family. Uh, you can sign up for our newsletter. There's, I have two sign-up sheets on, on our table in the back in the foyer. Sign up for our newsletter. Take one of our packets home It'll tell you a little bit more about who we are and what we're, we're called to do. Uh, maybe pray about financial partnership. You know, it's, it's interesting that, that one of the places in the world with the greatest need for the gospel, Europe, is also the place that's the most expensive to send missionaries. And so some of you maybe are, will support us financially, individually, because I don't know if you know this, but most of the missionary support comes from individuals and not churches. About 80% comes from individuals, 20% from supporting churches. So some of you, Lord willing, should, I, I would love for you to pray about financial partnership. That's one of the ways you can, you can help be part of a gospel movement in Berlin. Lastly, you can connect us to others who care about Europe and, and Germany and even in Berlin. Connect us to other people to help get us on the field. We're hoping to move sometime this summer, Lord willing, uh, but we'll see. We'll see. God's, God's timing is perfect. Um, let, me, let me end with this, guys. God's been so good to us, hasn't he? so incredibly good to us. Um, 2 Corinthians 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's good news. Jesus says again, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's what's been given to you. Jesus says, you're the light of the world. City on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. That's crazy talk. You don't do that. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. The purpose of light, the purpose of light is to shine. The purpose of light is to shine. Don't hide your light. A disciple whose life reveals none of the Father's works is like invisible light for the eyes. It's useless. The challenge for us, the challenge for you and me as we, is to, as we seek to live sent is to live out in the public arena what we are intrinsically in Christ. We are light. And as Bonhoeffer once said, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. 
So follow him into the darkness with me. Follow him. Can I pray for you? God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the presence of Christ here. God, I thank you for the gifting and and abilities you have given uh, the the, the body here. God, I pray that the, the light of Christ would shine brightly through this church, that as this church seeks to live sent and as they, as they seek to grapple with and pray through what that looks like here in this context, in this city, in this area, God, I pray that you would empower this church to, to live and to shine brightly so that, that people in this area might see our good deeds done in your name and praise you, God, and praise you. I pray, God, for a movement of the gospel here in Madison, a great influx of people into your kingdom, God, for your glory because you care about this world. You care about the people you've made. And we pray, God, that you would use us, all of us, in whatever capacity you've gifted us. We pray that you'd use us in a significant way. We love you, God. We want to respond in obedience to what you're saying to us. And we thank you so much for the light that you've placed in our lives. We love you, God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.